it's don't just leave us behind like that as if we did not you know simply exist uh, because we've been there we've been there to you know to, to serve people food uh, to cook for them to clean the table to clean everything uh, with the smile uh, and, and and you know and to cheer everybody up just don't forget us i'm danny valent and this is dirty linen the podcast that takes the issues the hospitality industry finds hard to air in public and shakes them all about. We're continuing our week uh, talking to and about visa holders in hospitality on Dirty Linen and I'm really pleased to present to you Clément de Marais. He's from France and I met him through the Attica Soup project. Um, uh, Like maybe a couple of months ago, Clément, you sent me your CV and it's about six pages long and it's really tells such a, well, it tells, I guess, part of your story, like you were born and raised in the south of France, a very foodie family. Um, from a very young age, you were immersed in the world of hospitality, but you're so incredibly qualified. You've got a, a hospitality MBA from business school in Paris. You've run restaurants and businesses in Australia. Uh, you know, I feel like you're so highly accomplished and it's just really crazy that you are uh, in the situation that you're in now. But first of all, welcome. Bienvenue to my podcast. Thanks for chatting to me. <laughs> Merci, Danny. Thank you so much. And, and what an accent. Like when you said my name, it was wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. That will be the last piece of French that I speak today. But um, I do love bashing away, bashing <laughs> away at French. And uh, uh, let's hope that one day I'm in Paris and can mangle the language again, as I, as I so love to do. In fact, Around this time, I was planning a trip to Europe and I was going to go not to Paris but to the south of France to a, a friend's, a friend has a share in a house in Provence and I was going to be there to celebrate my birthday. However, many plans have changed this year, haven't they? I know. I know the feeling. I know the feeling. Uh, I was supposed actually to be in France uh, right now with my family in Provence. That's where I'm coming from. So next time you, you decide to go in Provence, just let me know. I can... Uh, probably help you, you know, organize that uh, or, you know, give you some names of places you can, uh, you can go to as well. Great. Well, that is an absolute deal. I'm definitely going to hit you up and I certainly look forward to the time that I can plan overseas trips because um, much as I love Melbourne, it's also, you know, it's a great place to come home to uh, and I love being here, but I don't want to be stuck here like I am now. I know. I know the feeling. Um, but anyway, let's talk about you. Uh, tell me a, a little bit about yourself, about your time in Australia and the circumstances that you find yourself in at the moment. Absolutely. So uh, thank you so much, first of all, for, for giving me the opportunity to speak today. Um, I uh, first came in Australia in 2009 and I never wanted basically to spend more than a year. My, my, my aim was to come here, spend a year and then go back to Europe where I would do my uh, MBA ultimately. Um, but I, uh, I loved it so much that I um, went from a working holiday visa, I extended it with, um, uh, you know, at the time we had the woofing program. So it's the willing worker on organic farms. And so you could work three months on the farm and, and help a farmer, you know, like learning how to do some fencing and then, you know, like the uh, Australian dreams, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> and... Um, and then, um, so yeah, I extended it thanks to that. And then I, um, 
I had a, a second year and I, um, I met uh, uh, some, you know, couple uh, that wanted to open a restaurant. So I uh, became uh, fairly quickly uh, general manager and shareholder in a business uh, that I had for about uh, four years before eventually going back to France, do my MBA in Paris and then come back in Australia. Uh, this time in Sydney, um, I had a startup uh, in food concept and then worked in uh, in uh, in restaurant at the same time. So I was F&B manager, store manager as well. And then I was sent recently uh, to Melbourne to open uh, the latest store uh, of the restaurant chain I am. I mean, I was working for at the time of uh, uh, just before the coronavirus uh, um, happened. Okay. And what happened when um, the pandemic snuck up on us? It was it was um, it was very weird because we we you know we went from like in December January uh, everything is perfect it's going well uh, you know my staff was very happy uh, they uh, they told me I was the best manager in the universe <laughs> anyway um, and we were oh, like wow. I know <laughs> and then we were like you know everybody was like happy and and just like it was normal you know normal kind of activity to uh february so i i, I used to manage a store in um in the glen Riverley, east of uh, melbourne and we had one of the first cases of coronavirus uh i think in uh in victoria in a store in a restaurant uh about 500 meter away from us so uh from there onwards it was like um well, it was, you know, terrible days after days because nobody knew what was going on, if it was just a flu, if it was um, like something bigger than that. And uh, and we certainly did not know it was a, a pandemic situation. So the Glen Waverley got pretty quiet pretty quick, didn't it? Like people just stopped going out. Yes, absolutely. Uh, everybody was extremely cautious, uh, which is great at the end of the day. Uh, but you can understand that uh, all of a sudden, uh, you know, like from moving from like a busy activity in terms of restaurant to uh, not having anyone in the store, uh, all of a sudden you don't really know how to react um, because you've never been trained to this kind of, you know, event. Yeah, none of us have any experience. We don't know how to deal with this one. Uh, exactly. So... Um, so yeah, so it was like catching hours, uh, you know, uh, stop ordering, uh, produce to suppliers. And then all of a sudden we learned that we had to, uh, go into lockdown and that's where it became interesting, I guess, for international workers like me, um, because, uh, all of a sudden we, uh, were sort of like left a little bit aside you know with not so many options um i mean the only options we were given was to go home but uh for people in my case we've been living here for years now um and flying back home was like a bit weird because i you know i feel like i'm home uh i've been part of that community for years now uh you know actively um paying taxes or just uh, you know, friends, uh, girlfriend, um, you know, uh, my Australian family, uh, kind of, to, hey, how about you just leave the country? Yeah, it's a very 
large misunderstanding of the life that you've built for yourself here and also how much you've invested to be here. Not only have you invested, but your employer invested um, to sponsor you and it's a it's an expensive process for everybody on, on both sides of, of the equation. Uh, I mean, can you just explain to people listening who might not know of the investment that you put into uh, being in Australia, just how much do you think you would have spent over the years in um, in fees on visas and all the all the, the skills tests and all the kinds of things that you need to go through? Well, basically, the, the, the I mean, you can understand that the government is asking you to tick, you know, a certain number of boxes, uh, such as... Uh, uh, for example, um, my uh, diploma were in French, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. So you need to translate that uh, in English, which is fine. Um, and then maybe the, the, the system are a bit different. So you need just to make sure that the government can understand that. Um, so you need uh, a translator that is accredited by the government uh, to do that. Um, and then so you go through that process. Uh, the fees... I don't remember exactly, but it's, you know, a couple of hundred bucks um, every time you get a new document uh, to translate, uh, I think. And then after for the, the fees for the visa, um, it depends a bit on the company you're going to, you are going to work with. Uh, so if uh, the, the, the employer uh, is sort of like, you know, willing to support you because he sees you or she sees you as an asset, uh, then they will sort of like take over those fees. But most of the time what's happened is um, you pay for your uh, fair share. So um, I want to say probably uh, twenty to $30,000 altogether. Twenty to $30,000 to be here but to not have any not to not be treated like an Australian citizen when the shit hits the fan yeah well yeah well you know you can understand I mean I I can understand the 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 the, the fees that are linked with the fact that okay I'm here and then you understand that I've got those skills and then you employ me under those circumstances so that's fine um to me, what I don't understand is I pay those taxes to be part of this community that I I evolve into, uh, and I've sort of like ticked the boxes, you know, like uh, the government asked me to do things, and I'm like, okay, I do it, no problem, and I show all the paperwork and so on and so forth. But after all of that, they are like, oh yeah, but we don't need you anymore, you know, or um, how about you go somewhere else? We don't want to have. You feel a bit like you're a burden all of a sudden. And that's not um, that's not the best way to see yourself, uh, you know, the, the situation to see yourself into. Yeah, well, I mean, for you, you know, you you're so highly skilled. You've gone from you know uh, enterprise to enterprise. You've helped people build their businesses, and you've built your own business. What's it? What was it like for you to be out of work and to be in a position where? You know, much as I was always, I am always delighted to see you and give you soup, but f- to be in a position where you're coming somewhere for somebody to give you food. Um, so, uh, the first three days of the lockdown, I was extremely happy because uh, for the first time I was able to see a couple of movies I wanted to watch, you know, <laughs> uh, and I never had a chance to see them. So, I was like, yes, you know, like, so in three days, I sort of like watch movies, I, you know, Netflix and so on and so forth. And 
But the thing is, after three days, I was like, okay, so what am I supposed to do now? And that's that was like fairly hard. So um, I'm not used to do nothing. And I think the worst part was not doing nothing. It was almost considering yourself as not being helpful because um, just to give you an idea when, you know, at the very beginning of the, the lockdown, when we heard all the stories about, you know, the toilet papers and then, you know, everything that was missing in the supermarket. I was, I was thinking I can, I'm happy to go there. And then, you know, if they need a hand, I go, I work, I don't need to have like the best salary in the world, but just give a hand, you know, because that's the community I'm supporting. Uh, I want to work. I want to give a hand, but I can't because my visa have restrictions. So it's like, I'm not useful and my restrictions are making me you know, I sort of like have to stay in a corner, basically, and then wait until maybe something good happens. Um, so it's been it's been hard, like psychologically. I mean, I've been extremely lucky huh, to have people around myself, um, but there are you know there've been time where it was very hard to just get outside, you know, and then and be like, okay, so what am I doing? What am I supposed to do tomorrow? Etc. Uh, Etc. Et so many many questions. Uh, and yeah. Mm. So just for anyone who's who's uh, doesn't know the system, so if people are here as a sponsored worker on a visa four five seven or four eight two, they're basically tied to the business that employs them. So if that business is not able to continue to employ them, uh, that person's not able to go and work for somebody else. So Clement and people in his position couldn't get a job in a supermarket. They couldn't sanitize tram stops. They couldn't go and pick fruit. They're basically held hostage to this. Um, this original employer for another business to take them on they also have to take on the sponsorship so that's an investment of around ten thousand dollars so it's a really it's a really tricky one because as much as um, somebody might want your skills Clement they might not they you know simply might not be able to afford to do to invest in you at the moment so it's 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 really tricky um Tell me what your views are on the sponsorship system and, you know, do you think it works, you know, apart from during a pandemic, what are your views on how the sponsorship system works? Um, it's, a, it's a very hard question because um, there is many benefits and there is many flaws as well. Um, I think it's great that, uh, you know, like, for example, let's say like a business owner somewhere in Australia cannot find the skills, you know, like in a, in, in a pool of people that is given, uh, can sort of like pick someone from the outside um, and, 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 you know, get them to work for them and then evolve and so on and so forth. Um, it's, I think it's, it's very, it's a sensitive topic, you know, uh, because, not everybody can be given that responsibility. I believe that, um, you know, like a business owner is like a bit of an ambassador of Australia in a way. And when they are like sort of like taking someone from the outside, uh, they are responsible for the whole journey. Um, and it's fairly common to hear uh, discussion with inter international workers uh, that have been sort of like taken advantage of. Uh, I'm not saying it's everyone. I'm just saying like this case, you know, this situation exists. Um, and, um, and, and yeah, it's, um, it's a bit of a, it's a, it's a complex situation. It's a tricky one because 
Because the, the employer has to prove, they have to advertise the job locally, they have to show that the only person that they can employ that's qualified to do this particular job is is overseas. Um, and then they can bring someone over. But as we've, as we now understand, you know, you're very much beholden to that employer. And if they don't continue to employ you, then you may not be able to stay here. So it does put people who've come here in somewhat of a precarious position where they are really reliant on that employer. So do you think that there should be some further oversight by the government or some some way that this it's it, it, this system makes sure that it it protects the interests of both the employer and the employee in this scenario? That's correct. I think that's, I completely agree with what you're saying because I think uh, both the employer and uh, the employee are, you know, are making uh, some sort of like a, having an agreement. Um, uh, you know, like I'm happy to bring and to bring my skills uh, on the market. Uh, but if there is, as you said, if it's too precarious, then uh, why should I do that? Um, then I think there are some you know, sponsor that are sort of like taking a bit advantage of the situation. And I think the government should probably do something uh, to sort of like overview and monitor a bit more what is going on, the evolution, and, you know, if everything is sort of like respected. Because it's in everybody's own benefit, uh, you know, from the, the employee to the employer and the government ultimately as well. Yeah, so one of the things that um, I've heard that sometimes happens uh, is that the employer asks the overseas worker to pay the employer's expenses. So this is it's illegal to do this, but I have heard that it can happen where they would ask the employee to pay back the visa fee expenses, the immigration lawyer expenses. The, there's a skills levy that employers have to pay and some uh, some employees uh, fr- come from overseas that perhaps they don't understand all the rules or perhaps they're so desperate to uh, be here that they will um, assist the employer to do something that's actually against the law and, and pay for those expenses. That's true. That's true. Um, I think at the end of the day, um, there's, there's something important that needs to be said. It's uh, not every migrant is desperate to be here. Um, you know, like it's it's great. We are, I think I'm talking on behalf of everyone today, uh, thanks to the podcast, but I'm thinking that, you know, we're happy to bring our skills and then uh, make our life as well here in Australia. Uh, you know, like, as I said, like pay our tax, uh, evolve, uh, you know, uh, get married or whatever, uh, you know, would, whatever things would suit you, uh, you know, have kids and then, um, you know, buy a house, uh, car, and then, and so on and so forth. So that's that's fairly simple uh, down the line. Um, hmm. So I, I've heard I've heard stories about uh, uh, migrants working um, with you know like a like a sponsor um, and having to face like certain uh, precarious situation where, for example, they had to work um, you know overtime. Uh, otherwise, they would not be considered, and they could be sort of like sent back to their country, you know, between comma. Uh, so yeah, that's that's. I've heard like a bit of you know a couple of abuse here and there, but yeah, it's uh, there's 
as I said, there is the good and the, the bad side of it. Of course, yeah. I mean, there's there's always going to be whatever the system is and whatever the country is. There's going to be people trying to um, to to rot it or to get around it. And of course, there's also going to be a lot of people that are doing the right thing from from all sides. Um, one of the things that people uh, have said to me, you know, when I've been speaking up on the about the issue of visa holders, is that uh, you know we just should be giving these jobs to Australians. Uh, there's so many unemployed Australians. Why would we want anybody to be here from overseas to to do these jobs? Um, f- what do you think that you and and people like you can can bring to the Australian hospitality industry that isn't here already? So I, I think the, the the type of visa has a name and it's called skilled worker, and and that's pretty much what is lacking currently um, on the markets in Australia, uh, and that's the reason why we are here. Uh, is because we bring as well those skills. Um, uh, I, you know, like I think it's a fair market uh, in Australia. If you want a job, you just apply for it, and then if the employer is happy with that, then it's going to give you the job. Um, I, I think we are sort of like bringing on the top of the uh, multiculturalism. Um, uh, you know, like uh, you've got people from all around the world working in the hospitality industry in Australia, and that's what makes it. So interesting, you know, like uh, Melbourne, Sydney, you've got so many restaurants uh, from different, you know, background. It's so exciting. Um, um, but it's sort of like as well push a bit, you know, like there's a bit of dynamism, a bit of um, um, uh, competition. And then it sort of like brings everybody, you know, it push everybody up, you know, in terms of level. It levels up everyone uh, by bringing some uh, other people into this type of industry, ultimately. So why don't you think the skills base in Australia is very strong? Do you think it's a it's a cultural thing that you don't see many Australians wanting to go into hospitality, or do you think it's the way that the training system works? Like, uh, why is it that there aren't enough skills among Australians? Well, something I've heard over the past ten years uh, in Australia is that hospitality is not a proper, uh, you know, like work in hospitality is not a proper work. Um, I, I've heard so many people saying like, okay, you might do your studies uh, and then in the meantime, you might have a job in a restaurant, you know, or something like that. But ultimately, it's to get like a job somewhere else in another industry. So I don't think it's been extremely valued in the past as it has been in other countries, such as, for example, I'm taking obviously the example of, uh, of France where, you know, tourism, uh, food, uh, you know, like it's, it's part of our culture and our identity as well. And there's no shame in working in such industry. So um, I'm thinking there's a bit of a, you know, a different perspective on the industry. And the second aspect is um, it remains like a bit of a tough industry as well because the hours are fairly hard. Uh, certain conditions are you know, not very making it uh, easier, I guess. Um, and you need to be on the top you know, because the competition in, uh, in Australia is fierce. Um, you've got a lot of restaurants. If you're not happy, you just put like a bad review online. Uh, it's very easy to, you know, to complain. And then, um, so yeah, I think that's probably, you know, like the two main points uh, I've got in mind when I, I think about the uh, hospitality industry and the fact that maybe Australians don't really want to go into that industry. And it's probably... Uh, better for, I guess, immigrants. So in all the places that you've worked in Australia, have um, people on temporary visas always been an essential part of uh, the, the business? 
uh, mostly, yeah, and uh, and you've got some uh, some great stories, you know, like because that's what you want to see as well. No? You want to see, uh, you know, people joining a business and maybe starting as a dishy and then evolving as a, you know, a, a kitchen hand and then a second, you know. Uh, I mean, the sous chef kind of position, and then uh, potentially a chef eventually after a couple of years. So you've got some great stories like that, you know, and that we all want to see um, um, more and more. And 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 of course, uh, skilled visa workers uh, are essential for the um, hospitality industry in Australia, I guess. So when you've spoken to your family and friends back in France during the coronavirus period, what have they said about your plight in Australia and about what the, the analogous situation in France? Um, they, they did not really understand what was going on because the situation over there was fairly simple. As soon as you were working for a company, uh, whether you were French or from European or from overseas, um, the government would support you because you are part of the society. You are part of the community. Uh, so 80% of the salary was taken uh, care of by the government and the rest uh, by the company uh, during that time. So as soon as I mentioned that to my family, they could not believe it because basically the only option I was given was, uh, hey, how about you access $10,000 of your superannuation? And that was it. So for my understanding, my superannuation is something I will benefit, you know, when I'm going to retire. But no, it's something I, it was the only option that was given to me. Um, and, and nobody could really understand that. So we were like sort of like all puzzled. Um, and, and I'm still puzzled. I mean, you know, I made the choice to remain in Australia during, you know, in the meantime. Um, and sometime I, yeah, I just can't believe it. So, yeah. It's pretty, it is pretty unbelievable. And I, I think, you know, so people, everybody in Australia who'd lost a certain amount of income was able to access up to $10,000 of their superannuation in the last financial year. People on temporary visas were not given the option to access it this financial year, whereas Australians were. I think for anybody uh, accessing your super is really a last resort. That's the money that's there for your future. But to make that the only option for temporary visa holders, I think was incredibly insulting as though to say that your future is not as important as anybody else's. Is that, you know, is that how you saw it? This is, um, this is correct. Um, it's like, you know, like all of a sudden your, your self-valuation like takes a hit. Uh, you are like, oh, okay. Uh, so I'm not that important uh, to you. And, and, and yeah, so it, it doesn't help you in, uh, in feeling good at all. Um, and, and definitely you don't feel like you're essential, uh, which is, um, which is another hit. Um, so you feel, I feel, I feel like, you know, you're lucky when, um, you've got, you know, some good people around you to support you, um, like just to give you a couple of uh, ideas, I had like some um, uh, my previous customers. Uh, they invited me for a meal, uh, and and they could not believe the situation I was into. Um, I had my staff, the staff I used to manage. They had access to the support from the government. Uh, they sent me some uh, um, 
you know, like some uh, little package with, uh, you know, a bit of food in it, uh, just a bit of love. And that was fantastic. Uh, they've been like people like you, Danny, uh, that did organize like, you know, like the, with the soup projects that gave us a bit of hope uh, and, and, you know, our family and so on and so forth. But that was pretty much it. Um, so, so yeah, it's been, it's been rough. It's been rough. Yeah. For me that you're, the fact that you're here because Australia decided that we needed your skills and then to just like turn around, turn our backs on you. Uh, it's, it's, as you say, it's puzzling beyond puzzling. It's very upsetting. And I think just from a simple social justice point of view, it's wrong. And uh, yeah, we we should definitely be doing better by uh, people such as yourself, Clement. Um, if um, I suddenly transformed into the Prime Minister of Australia, um, what would you like to say to me? Um, oh, I just I just got a little shudder as I said those words because I don't want to transform into the Prime Minister of Australia. But anyway, <laughs> what would you say? To um, I, I think about the future as well, you know, like I think we are all in this together um, and we did participate in the fact that Australia is where it is, you know, right now uh, without, you know, like by respecting the rules by respecting the regulation and every single requirement that was asked to us, you know, um, don't 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 just leave us behind like that as if we did not, you know, simply exist. Uh, because we've been there, we've been there to you know to to serve people food, uh, to cook for them, to clean the table, to clean everything uh, with the smile, uh, and 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 you know and to cheer everybody up. Um, with following like the simple path of you know any migrant uh, that they, you know that came in Australia, so just don't forget us. Yeah, I think that would be pretty much what I would, what you know, I would tell you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, as Prime Minister of Australia, I'm changing the rules as of tomorrow morning, Clement. So I'm glad I now have this power. <laughs> Um, Clement, I wish I had that power and I'll keep speaking up as much as I can um, for on your behalf and for people like you. And honestly, if there's one good thing about the coronavirus, it's the fantastic people that I've had the privilege to meet and I certainly count you among those. So thank you so much for coming on to Jodie Lynn and sharing your story and uh, speaking so eloquently about uh, the path and the plight of a temporary visa holder in Australia. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production. <laughs>